influence of, of Arnold Freiburg and how we've come to imagine scenes from church history. Freiburg is an amazing artist. I could tell you the stories of Samuel the Lamanite, the Stripling Warriors, and Abinadi, not because of the text, but because of the powerful images that Freiburg created and that were in the Book of Mormon and so oft represented. And, you know, one of the distinctive characteristics is that, you know, many of the male figures in his images are portrayed as being incredibly muscular. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're uh, buff. They're... And, and see, this is back to the tension of art and historical reality. But he, in his own interviews, he said, you know, I wanted to depict their spiritual strength through their physical strength. And so once again, that, that's not reality. Uh, I don't think Abinadi, but even if Abinadi was 90 years old, I, I'd put that man on the cover of Men's Health. Um, because he's ripped out of his mind. You know, he's using an artistic device to communicate an idea. Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history, and culture. Digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun. Learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. This is Russell Stevenson with LDS Perspectives. Today we have Dr. Anthony Sweat, a professor of religion at Brigham Young University, to discuss with us images that have informed how we see the Book of Mormon translation process. Thanks for being here, Dr. Sweat. Oh, thank you. It's a joy to be with you. Let's first talk about how you're peculiarly qualified to address this issue. Well, I am an assistant professor in church history and doctrine here at uh, Brigham Young University, and I've taught religion in the church educational system now for 18 years, uh, three years here now at BYU, but I'm also a professionally trained artist. I got a, my bachelor's degree before I went in and got graduate degrees in education. My bachelor's degree is in painting and drawing. So kind of intersect, religion and art intersect naturally for me. I, I joke around with people that when they ask me about art, I say I'm such a great artist that I'm a religion professor. So uh, I don't paint professionally full-time but I'm definitely trained in it. I love it, and I do it. So, yes, and I'm here in your office, and I see a number of uh, pieces of artwork, and it, it's it's fantastic. It's oh, it's thank gorgeous. You. Thank you. I, I'm interested in what drew you to the artistic profession. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I I've always loved art ever since I was young. I've drawn and painted, and love to represent things. I think that's how I stayed awake during church was drawing the speakers who spoke at the stand. People thought I was just this intent listener, and really I was drawing their portrait. And then I uh, I just kept pursuing it. It was something that when I went into to college that I, I wanted to study, I wanted to understand better to try to develop that, that capacity in me if I have any. Yes, so a common uh, conversation amongst uh, art historians, even uh, within the general public, is you know the purpose of art. Mm -hmm. uh, why does it exist, and uh, what does it do for us? How do you answer that question? Well, that's a deep philosophical question. That, that's been at the root of a lot of art for centuries. Do we idealize in art, which uh, we, we have for centuries? Do we then, like uh, Manet, suddenly start painting common people and, you know, it re realistically, uh, semi anyway, before they moved into Impressionism? And what, what is the point of art? It's always been to express. Sometimes it's to express reality. Sometimes it's to express ideals. And, and what's being expressed changes based off who the consumers are, who's paying for it, who's publishing it, who's presenting it. All those factors influence what gets produced in a piece of art. 
Now, based on your uh, training and uh, your experience, have you seen a tension between the purpose of art being the conveying of feeling versus the purpose of art being the conveying of historical reality? Well, I can only speak to my experience. I'm sure other artists would have, particularly those, I, you know, I have to give, in all sincerity, respect to those who do it all day, every day, full time, because I don't. Uh, but in my, from, from my experience, uh, I was more trained in art as expression, not art as uh, historical reality. As a matter of fact, even in my artistic training, my art professors, if we started to get too, they call it tight, too detailed, too real, they would say, why are you painting? Why don't you just take a photograph? Which is a good point. And sometimes a lay person not trained in art, will they'll say, oh, that's a beautiful piece of art because it's so photorealistic, uh, which the irony of that is that's what they perceive in the beauty, which is wonderful uh, because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But for many trained artists, they, they, they don't want that. They, they want to express something in a way that art gives them the medium to do so. So my, my experience has been art's about expression. Art is about conveying ideas, feelings, emotion, trying to have the viewer have an experience or you getting an idea across. And whatever tool you need to do, whether it's color, line, shape, form, you do it. Tell me a little bit, little bit about your, uh, your background, your, your training. You know, where did you go to school? Uh, what schools of thought did you ascribe to as an artist? I, uh, I went to Brigham Young's original university. It's called the University of Utah. <laughs> I love BYU, don't get me wrong. But I, I went to the University of Utah, their art school, and my training there was very, uh, training a lot of figure art and a lot of landscape, and they're very much post-impressionists. So I even made the mistake one time of doing a painting of Jesus. Uh, it was a mistake because, A, it was a bad painting uh, on my part, self-admittedly, and B, they did not want their students doing paintings of Jesus, uh, that is for sure. So you've done a, quite a bit of research on the origins, you know, really the change over time in how we see the history of Book of Mormon translation. Yeah. You know, where, you know, who was the first, for example, to depict the Book of Mormon in artwork, and uh, how has that imagery changed over time? Uh, you know, that's a good question. If I could back up for a second, the reason why I became interested in it is because I, like, like many other people, I am a visual learner. When I was young and the enzyme would show up in the mail, the first thing I would do was open it up and look at all the images. Uh, that's, that's the very first thing I would do. I would flip through every page. I wouldn't read any talks. As a matter of fact, when the conference issue of the enzyme would come, I would always get, I, I called it as a teenager with respect, the boring issue, because it didn't have any paintings in it. Now that I'm older, I don't call it that, of course. And so I consumed imagery and I learned very quickly that imagery affects our perceptions of doctrine and of history. I learned a lot of church history and doctrine through imagery, whether accurate or inaccurate. In fact, in your case, it sounds as if the imagery informed your views more than the written word. Yeah, it may have when I was younger, especially. You know, I, I could tell you, and maybe later we'll discuss Freeburg, I don't know, but I. I could tell you the stories of Samuel the Lamanite and uh, the stripling warriors and Abinadi, uh, not because of the text, but because of the powerful images that Freeburg created and that were in the Book of Mormon and so oft represented in the 70s and 80s and 90s when I was growing up. So anyway, back to your original question, the thing that got me interested in it was as a professor here at BYU, I teach Doctrine and Covenants, church history classes, the foundations of the Restoration. I noticed many of my students 
who would have questions about the translation of the Book of Mormon. And when they would learn that Joseph, based off numerous sources, would used a seer stone, uh, sometimes, depending on the source, the interpreters that came with the plates, sometimes a stone that he procured when he was a teenager, and that he would place it in a hat, many of them were confused. And so they would, they would talk and they would say, and, and it was not uncommon to hear them say, but that's not how the images show it. That's not how the video, the prophet of the restoration shows it. That's not what the paintings look like, which is just an, it shows how the imagery has informed the history for many of uh, many Latter-day Saints. So I had some colleagues here who were writing a wonderful book on the translation of the Book of Mormon, and I started getting interested in how are we representing it and started studying it. Would you argue then that the history should inform the imagery more than the imagery informing the history? I, I hesitate on that. I would argue that the viewer needs to be responsible, that we need to be more perceptive viewers. I don't want to put a burden on any artist to tell him or her what they should or shouldn't paint. That's their choice. And, and so I, I'm not arguing necessarily that the artist should be portraying this accurately, uh, historically accurate. There's a need for that, but if they want to portray the, the Book of Mormon translation, whatever they want to use to evoke God inspiring Joseph Smith to produce the sacred text, uh, let him use it. I'm hesitant to say that it's the artist's responsibility to do so. I think it's more a responsibility of a viewer to see art as a medium, not necessarily as historical reality. And in fact, uh, in, in your own written work, you, know, you, you speak to uh, how you depicted the translation for this volume, the volumes yeah. uh, from darkness into light. And you say that the picture might be called the sick of Joseph. Yeah. Expound on that a little bit, would you? Yeah. I, uh, so for those who aren't aware, I, I did paint my, my attempt uh, when my colleagues wrote this book from darkness and delight, Garrett Dirkmod and Michael McKay in talking with them, I told them you need an image uh, because the only images that really show Joseph using the hat were either pejorative, meaning, you know, they, they, they mocked the process. Sadly, particularly speaking, because I teach uh, young adults primarily here at BYU, most of them, their first exposure to the hat method is through the cartoon South Park. And what I told them is, you need an image that is done in a professional way that shows Joseph using the stone and the hat method to translate, but that still tries to convey the feeling of inspiration, revelation, and a sacred work, not an image that makes fun of it. That was my attempt as an artist, was to produce that image. So I painted that. Whether it does or doesn't work, I'll let those who see it be the judge and jury on that. It was a wonderful process to try it anyway. When I painted it, this is just one of the hard things about art, is some things work visually and other things simply don't. It was a hard, the, in the art world, they just call it a composition. How are you laying it out? How are things, where are the figures? How are the lines, the movement? And my first ones that I did where I had Joseph's face, you know, some of the sources say that Joseph would place the stone in the hat, and the word they use is he, was, he would bury his face in the hat. Well, I did some sketches and some drawings of Joseph with his uh, face buried in the hat, and all it looked like is that he was sick. And so I joked in the piece that I wrote that I, I wanted to call it the sick of Joseph instead of the stick of Joseph because it, didn't, it wasn't conveying that feeling of revelation, inspiration, a sacred work. And so even in the image that I did, I pulled back and I showed Joseph holding the hat, but his face is pulled back as though he's getting ready to put his face in or he's just withdrawn it because I needed to communicate that for the viewer. Right, because if 
you depicted Joseph Smith burying his face in that. It looked like he was just vomiting. Yeah. Right? They, and some of the sketches. Some bad chili or something. Yeah, exactly. I, I did some uh, internal illustrations for From Darkness Unto Light. And some of those illustrations that are in that book, and, and you can probably see online if you Google it, they show Joseph's face in the hat. And frankly, they're, they're not as good of compositions. That's why I didn't paint those. They're just sketches. Now, you mentioned earlier that viewers need to be responsible in how they consume their artwork and how yeah. they consume all kinds of information. How would you respond to those who would say, okay, that's all fine and good. We agree with that. However, these images have come down to us from semi-official and yes. often official church sources. What do you expect us to do? Yeah, that is a really, really good question. I don't know if I have the answer for it because one of the burdens, and I can't speak for the church or their magazines or their art directors, one of the burdens that's on them is they know that everything that they produce has a stamp of officialness on it, as though this is the church's position. And I don't want to be critical, but a number of years ago when, when someone photoshopped the wings off of a Karl Block painting, there's a beautiful painting of the resurrection of Jesus with two angels to his side with wings. And for some reason, when the church published that in the Enzyme, they photoshopped someone, I don't know who, made the decision to photoshop off the wings. And the angels uh, that were female, their shoulders were exposed, and they photoshopped and capped their shoulders. And I can understand the reasoning behind it. You know, Joseph doctrinally says angels don't have wings. And you can imagine someone, and I'm just, this is just hypothesizing and making assumption, and I may be wrong. You can imagine someone saying, if we print this picture like this, some people might get the wrong doctrinal idea that angels are a different class of being and that they have wings and we want to make sure that everyone we show promotes, you know, modesty and dress. And, and you can see that discussion going on, which in my personal opinion, I think is unfortunate. We, we should trust the viewer and the viewer should be as well informed enough to understand that if, if there's an image with an angel of wings, just like John the Revelator, well, then perhaps it's symbolic of movement and power, as, as the prophet Joseph says. So it is fine and dandy, uh, like you say, for me to say that, but it is a difficult tension point for both what the church is producing in their official magazines and us as a viewer consuming it. I, I just wish that there would be a disclaimer that says, all images within this magazine are meant to convey ideas or emotions that are not depictions of historical or doctrinal reality. <laughs> that might solve the problem. So um, uh, let's pursue that a little bit more. What kinds of practical advice would you have for viewers as they consume material from, I mean, uh, visual material from official church sources? Well, I'm not sure. And once again, I couldn't speak for the church or its magazines, but I'm not sure the magazines are trying to produce uh, or select the best art. You know, it's not an art magazine. So they're selecting imagery that, that supports an idea or, or supports, a, you know, somehow supports a text. So in one of the, uh, the paintings that you've produced, uh, you depict Joseph Smith as a young boy, and he's finding a, a stone, and uh, the stone is brown in color. However, I, I'm seeing here on your desk, you have another painting, and it's also a seer stone, except this stone, like a crystal or it looks white, 
And I'm interested to see... Uh, you sound like those who described it. Crystal, white, marble-ish <laughs> granite. They couldn't quite describe it. Yeah, so uh, why is it that you've depicted this seer stone uh, with different colors? That's a, that's a good question. This image I produced called uh, Gazalem, a stone. Once again, I'm, I'm trying, I'm attempting to try to show some things historically accurate. So this is Joseph Smith when he's a teenager finding his teenage seer stone. And frankly, the sources aren't exactly clear on that stone. They contradict one another. Did Joseph find a white stone uh, or did he find a brown stone? Uh, was he 12 when he found it? Was he 14? Was he 16? Did he find it digging in a well on the chase farm or did he go 70 miles up by Lake Erie as a teenage boy all by himself and dig it 30 feet under the ground, as Wilford Woodruff uh, said? We don't know, and and you know even even the scholars who look at it say, well, we don't know, you know. So my point being that when I painted this image, because the sources aren't exactly clear, I just had to paint an image that showed a teenage boy, it could be between 12 and 16, digging somewhere, whether it was in a well by his home or far away, finding a stone. And I chose to represent the brown stone, but it is slightly glowing. Partly, once again, back to artistic device to draw the viewer's attention to the stone as well. So you say that the sources don't exactly agree. What sources exactly did you draw upon uh, for depicting these images? Well, I'll have to give credit to my colleague, Dr. Michael McKay and Nick Frederick in Ancient Scripture. They're writing a book that is, is called Joseph Smith's Seer Stones. And they've done a lot of work, historical work, pulling up source material of what were the various stones that Joseph had or was purported to have? Where did they come from? Are they valid or invalid? Do we believe this? Do we not? Here's why, why not? A, a number of these paintings, the painting I did of the, of the white stone, which I'm not sure the white stone's ever been depicted, I drew off those sources uh, within their text that they gave me that uh, a few people who saw the white stone gave a description of it. And then obviously the brown stone's easy. The church published pictures of it, so... Now, the title that you uh, you gave to this painting is Gazellum, a Stone. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this raises the question. I mean, in, uh, in Scripture and in a variety of sources, Gazellum is used to describe both a stone, it seems, as well as a person. So what, or should I say, who is Gazellum? I'm not sure we know. There, there seems to be, you know, they, when I say they, early church leaders referred to Joseph's stone as Gazellum. But there's also, if you read Alma 36, when it says, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalem a stone, which is where I drew that title from. That seems to suggest it's a person. There's one source of W.W. Phelps at Joseph Smith's funeral after the martyrdom where he, he says that Joseph Smith's name is known as Gazalem. I believe at section 78, just off the top of my head of the Doctrine and Covenants, when they had to use code names, either 78 or 82, when they used code names to try to uh, conceal the identity of, of leaders of the church for, for various reasons. But Joseph's code name, that when they cross out the name Joseph, they use the word Gazalem uh, to describe Joseph. So is it a stone? Is it a seer stone? Uh, perhaps. Is it him? Perhaps. I don't know. It could be either or both or neither. We'll wait for the next volume of the Joseph Smith Papers to come out to tell us. That's right. That's right. Those have been some <laughs> excellent volumes. Yeah. Now, let's speak a little bit to uh, other influences on LDS thought through art. Let's talk about the influence of, of Arnold Freeberg and how we've uh, come to imagine scenes from church history. Yeah, Freeberg is an amazing artist. 
he really is a great artist. And I think that's one of the reasons why he has such profound impact is because his images are powerful. And when the, I believe it was the primary president of the church is the one who commissioned him and funded them, I believe, originally with her own her own money because she wanted those images produced but credit be to her because those images were powerful and they've been powerful and so powerful that the church has included them at the beginning of the of the blue copies the missionary copies of the book of mormon you know one of the distinctive characteristics is that you know many of the male figures in his images are portrayed as being incredibly muscular yeah yeah i mean they're uh, buff they're and and see this is back to the tension of art and reality of historical reality. I, I can't wait one day to meet Captain Moroni and he's short and pudgy, perhaps like uh, in our own military history and American history, Nathaniel Green or uh, General Knox. You know, uh, you don't have to be ripped out of your mind to be a Nephite or uh, a Book of Mormon leader. But he, in his own interviews, uh, the ones I've read anyway, he said, you know, I wanted to depict their spiritual strength through their physical strength. And so once again, that's, that's not reality. Uh, I don't think Abinadi, A, we don't know how old Abinadi was, but even if Abinadi was 90 years old, I, I'd put that man on the cover of Men's Health um, right. because he's ripped out of his mind. So, you know, he's using an artistic device to communicate an idea. And similarly, you know, Del Parsons' depiction of Jesus Christ yeah. has become incredibly popular. In fact, you might even say it's become definitive it within has. the LDS artwork. It has. And yet he looks, uh, I mean, Jesus Christ looks incredibly Anglo-Saxon. Yeah, very right? much so. As, it, in fact, in the article uh, that you've written, it, you talk about a conversation that you had with a, a number of uh, yeah. Arab people where they say, wait, you're telling us that Jesus looked like an American mountain man? Uh-huh. And, I, and I said, it, it was wonderful, and I, because they, they saw the image of our uh, Del Parsons Christ in the red robe, and they said, who's that? And Obviously, they were, they were Muslims, and Muslims believe Jesus is a prophet. And when I said it's Jesus, they all broke into spontaneous laughter. And then they said that what you said, uh, that he looks like an American mountain man. And I said, well, what do you think he looks like? And a little surprised, they said, like us. And they're probably more, if we're being historically accurate, they're, they're correct. But it's also, it goes to show, too, that we paint Christ to reflect our own culture, our own values. That's why there's images of Christ as an Asian, images of him as an African. And I personally have no problem with them because, once again, you're using art to connect to the viewer. Rembrandt put Jesus in quaint little Dutch scenes because that was what home and village and town and people uh, looked like to him and his viewers at the time. And it's interesting to me that, you know, as you look at Latter-day Saint artwork, really since the beginning, it has depicted an overwhelmingly, you know, Anglo-Saxon population. Only very recently have we begun to see, you know, artwork depict Jane Manning James, for example, or, you know, to some extent, Elijah uh, Abel over at the Church History Museum. Do you think that LDS artwork is moving in a new direction, or are these depictions of ethnic minorities within the LDS community, are they just random one-off instances. Oh, no. I, th- I think it is moving in a new, new direction because, and once again, without getting too philosophical on it, art is a... We ref- can get philosophical okay. if you like. Wonderful. That's fine. I guess I do have a, a, a PhD, a, a <laughs> doctor of philosophy. Art is a reflection of the values of society. Does, does society drive art? Does art drive society? A little bit of both. 
obviously, but art represents what society values, and that translates into the church as well. And we're moving into an age in the church where I think we're becoming more, obviously we're becoming a more international church uh, as we come out of obscurity. I'm grateful to the Lord for blessing the work in that uh, regard. And so the church will itself become more diverse instead of just an American-centric church. But also, I think as a people, we're becoming more nuanced uh, in our understanding of, of concepts and ideas, and, and we're hopefully uh, trying to become better at dealing with some ambiguities and unknown answers. And I think that translates into art, frankly, into seeing things differently, uh, art becoming more symbolic, more representative. I think even you, know, you see some success of, of current Latter-day Saint artists, and uh, I'm a huge fan of J. Kirk Richards. I think he is such a gifted artist, and and you see his 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 work is not he can be extremely realistic. His work is very gestural, symbolic, representative, and there's becoming a more common Latter Day Saint who's willing to consume and support that kind of art. So that speaks to ethnic representation, to symbolic representation. I think as a whole, it's a representation of us as a people becoming more open and, and more uh, international as well. So as a Latter-day Saint artist who is also a professor of religion at Brigham Young University, do you see yourself as an agent of change in this regard, as, as a driver of these ethics, values, and, uh, and ideologies within the Latter-day Saint community? Well, I think it would be presumptuous to, that I'm some change agent being, we all are, we're all change agents in our own regard. Uh, you are, I am, everyone is in their individual communities and circles of influence. Uh, within my influence as a, as a scholar, as a painter, as a writer, and as a teacher, hopefully I have some influence. Otherwise, I better be fired. You know, uh, so, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully I can to those that I may have any, any influence over. I think transparency is wonderful. I think I, I applaud what's going on right now, uh, both formally in the church and without as well, of, of transparency. As a professor, I try to be transparent with my students. I think transparency just helps people, whether it's in teaching, in dialogue, or in art. And one quick story is while I was painting the translation of the Book of Mormon image, that feature image of Joseph looking in the hat, here I was working with students who were struggling with it because that, that was very different from the concept of the translation that they had, you know, everything, everything we showed in imagery is Joseph with the plates open, his finger in the plates, and him looking studiously as though that's how the translation happened. And so when they read these texts or hear these, they struggle. Well, as I'm working on Joseph translating with the hat, there's a knock on my door and I open it up and it's a young teenage boy who is coming over to play with one of my kids. I say, yeah, hold on one second. And I'm painting in my front studio in my house. And he says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm painting a painting. And as a teacher, I said, I said, what do you think of it? And I was nearing the end. I was putting some final, so it was almost complete. And, and he said, cool. And I said, well, what, what do you think it is? He goes, well, is that Joseph Smith? And I said, yeah, it is. And I said, what do you think he's doing with the hat? And he goes, is he translating the Book of Mormon? And I said, yeah, he is actually. I said, what, what, why is he using a hat to do it, though? And on his own, he logically deduced, did he put the Urim and Thummim in there? And I said, he did actually, based off some of the people who watched him do it. And then I said back to him, why do you think he would do that? 
why, why do you think Joseph would put the stones in there maybe? He goes, I don't know, maybe so he could see them better. Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah. He said that sometimes he would do it to block out light or that's it. And he just goes, cool. And then he goes on, uh, you know, I can't prophesy, but I'll nearly make a guarantee that kid will never struggle when he hears that Joseph translated the Book of Mormon by placing seer stones in a hat. He'll go, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've known that my whole life. And so back to your question of change agent, whether it's through the written word, the spoken word, or the visual word, they all influence us. And I think the more transparent and open we are, uh, the better. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Well, one of the things that we were told as a missionary, maybe this was just missionary stuff, was the look once and you're not a man. Look twice and you're not a missionary. I think that's so dumb. <laughs> I got to be honest. I think that's horrible. That's a horrible thing. It's a horrible hey, it was saying. said throughout my whole mission. I, I, on mine too, right? And I just, I think it's dumb. I think it's immature. And I think it's not healthy. Okay. Well, where, where is that. healthy? That, I guess that's the question, right? LDS Perspectives Podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. An LDS Perspectives Podcast and its parent organization may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.